Hello, and welcome back to Vox Podcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with nobody here this time because we have a special. That's right, a little bit of a different format than you might be used to. If you were listening last week, then you know that this week, Wayne and I, along with our good friend Marcel Walker, went to Cleveland for the Superman at 85 conference. Superman, for those of you who don't know, was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster to, at the time, high school students from Cleveland, Ohio. So this is the 85th anniversary of the character, and there have been a series of events this year in order to recognize that. And this last weekend, there was a conference, an academic conference, and Wayne and I had the opportunity to speak there on a panel along with Marcel and our new friend, Trevor Smith. So we recorded the panel and you get to hear it now. I always like these kind of shows. If you haven't heard one of our in-conference shows before, they're a chance for you to hear some of the academic work as we present it. This show was conceived very much as sort of a conversation between academics after a conference. So this is a chance to sort of see what it's like when we're actually at the conference and what people see live. So here's our host, Valentino Zulo, who ran the event. He's going to do some introductions and I will talk to you at the end of the show. Okay, so I'm going to do quick introductions, um, and it will dawn on me who everybody is who is sitting here, because I just realized that Wayne is part of a podcast that I listened to. It took me 24 hours to realize <laughs> that it's the same person that I listened to. This is not the first time I've done this in my life. So I'm just going to read the introductions. So first, Wayne Wise is an independent scholar, freelance writer, and artist with a BA in history and an MA in clinical psychology. He has taught classes on comics and graphic novels at Chatham University and the University of Pittsburgh, as well as doing countless presentations at many other local universities and libraries. He served on the board and as resident comic scholar of the Pittsburgh Toonsium. He's the lead writer for the comic book series Hutzpow. Hutzpow? I'm not good at the, at the Yiddish. Yeah, Hutzpow. Um, Real Superheroes of the Holocaust, published by the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh. He has over two decades of experience in comic book retail, and he is the co-host of Vox Popcast, a weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. Back in the 90s, he worked as an anchor for Malibu Graphics and was the recipient of one of the first self-publishing grants from Peter Laird's Zarek Foundation. Um, I'm just going to read everybody's intros. Marcel Lamont. Uh, Walker is lifelong Superman devotee and an award-winning graphic prose creator and expert in social applications for comic book art. In 2017, he was voted Best Local Cartoonist by readers of the Pittsburgh City Paper in their annual Best of Pittsburgh poll. In 2018, he was awarded a Be Me Community Genius Fellowship in recognition of his work in the arts and related community activity. From 2018 to 2023, he served as president of the board of the directors for the Toonsium. Pittsburgh's nonprofit museum of comic and cartoon art. In 2014, he became the lead artist and book designer for the acclaimed comic book Kutzpau. I'm practicing saying this. <laughs> uh, Superheroes of the Holocaust, published by the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh. In 2017, he became Kutzpau's project coordinator and works with educators and students across the country to promote the use of literature and visual art as forces for social good. 
um, Christopher Mav Maverick, who has five grills. I want to let you know that I'm putting you out there. You put it on the on the on the pod, on the podcast, but I, I it was something that stuck with me. Um, teaches in the digital narrative and interactive design program. His primary research interests include issues of race, class, gender, and sexuality in 20th and 21st century American popular culture, especially television, movies, professional wrestling, and comic books. He is the 2018 recipient of the Lent Award, as in John Lent, uh, for excellence in graduate studies in comics from the Popular Culture Association, and the 2021 Honorable Mention recipient for the Gilbert Seldes. Okay, I don't actually know how to say some of these things. I never say them out loud. For public scholarship from the Comic Studies Society, and the 2023 recipient of PCA's Kathy Murlock Jackson Award. Since 2022, he has been the area chair for Eros and Pornography and Popular Culture for the PCA, Pop Culture Association. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I'll put myself out there. I said about your five girls, but I have five pets, so it's all right. So it's in in good. What did you say? Yeah, one. Let's hope not. (laughs) But yes, maybe. (laughs) All right. Trevor Smith is our last panelist. Trevor Smith is a third year student at Overland College, a local college, uh, where he studies politics and philosophy. In his spare time, he teaches a weekly class in history, culture, and industry of American comics. I want to hear about that because if you're doing it in Overland, I want to come. So, um, so you'll have to tell us about that. Okay. I am going to let you all start. I think you've got this. You know how to talk about comics. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to follow up on what he was saying, I had a conversation with Peter at the bar last night and didn't know it was you until this morning. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So just a, a, a word of warning. Uh, he mentioned the Vox Popcast. We are recording this to to publish on our podcast. Uh, just so you know, we are recording it. So if you have any questions, just know you're being recorded. If you don't want to be recorded, don't ask any questions or tell us. We can certainly edit it out. So, so that's it. Um, uh, I'm glad you gave the entire title of the podcast. It saves me from stumbling over that. <laughs> um, okay, so the archetypal dynamic tension of the Superman versus Batman debate. This has changed a lot since I sent the proposal in the morning it was due. Um, it's actually changed some since Peter talked this morning. So we're going to jump into this. Um, um, and a lot of this is probably pretty basic information, but here we go. So the first appearance of Superman in Action Comics number one in 1938 is generally considered the beginning of the superhero genre, firmly establishing the tropes that have become the hallmark of superheroes ever since. Within a year, the success of Superman led to the appearance of countless new characters, most notably Batman, who first appeared in Detective Comics 27 in 1939. One caveat before going any further, Superman and Batman have appeared in thousands of stories, in comics and other media, uh, written by hundreds of people. There can be radical differences in their portrayals over the years. The 1960s television Batman bears little resemblance to Frank Miller's Dark Knight. Although, as someone said earlier, Batman is Batman is Batman. They are all legitimate representations of that, but there are radical differences. So for this presentation, I'm speaking in overarching terms about each of them, fully aware that there are probably specific stories that contradict anything I have to say. Since the beginning, these two characters have embodied a dualism of the light and dark characteristics of the superhero. In many ways, they represent the poles of what a superhero is. On one end of the spectrum is Superman, possessed of powers beyond those of a normal human. His strength and vulnerability, flight, and other miraculous powers are gifts that are inherent in his being things that others cannot possess unless they are of the same background or otherwise gifted with superpowers. On the other end of the spectrum is Batman, representing the height of what a normal human can aspire to. 
aided only by his ability to train his body to its limits, his intelligence, and what he can create because of it. Superman inspired the creation of the entire genre, and it can be said that every superhero is, a thematic, is his thematic descendant. Superman and Batman represent a classic yin and yang, in that they can be read as a god of light and a god of darkness, god of the sky, god of the underworld. Superheroes tapped into a mythic element very early. This symbolism has been present from the earliest days of comics. The Justice Society around the round table references King Arthur's round table, but there's also lots of images like this, the, the Greek pantheon. Superheroes have been read as a modern pantheon, hearkening back to classical mythology. Um, Grant Morrison's run on JLA in the 1990s was very overtly based on that. There's a wizard article where he just kind of breaks down what God inspired which character. Um, in this way, Superman, as the progenitor of the concept, is the Ur hero, the first. He is Zeus or any of the other head gods of a pantheon. Given the source of his powers, he is also a sun god. Many, many characters are directly inspired by Superman, little more than Superman in another guise. Often this is done not to rip off the character, but to explore aspects of the concept of a miraculously superpowered being that cannot be done under the auspices of DC Comics and the mythos of the actual character. The same is true of Batman. Many of the characters in these two slides are direct tributes, while others embody more original ideas, but all, all are inspired by these original two. It can be argued that every superhero can be plotted onto a spectrum between these two symbolic poles, characters with powers on the Superman side, characters without on the Batman side. And I acknowledge that there would be a whole lot of arguing within fandom about who falls where. Uh, this is only a sampling from Marvel and DC, but there are obviously thousands of characters. We were talking last night, and you know, like, okay, the Flash is on the Superman side. He has superpowers. Iron Man's on the Batman side. He's just a guy with a really expensive utility belt. Um, Green Lantern is on the Batman side. He's a guy with a little tiny, very magical utility belt on his finger. Um, but without those gimmicks, they are powerless. The light-dark duality takes many forms. The core personality of each, while going through many changes over the decade, reflects this. Superman is typically portrayed as optimistic, seeing the best in the world around him. Batman is far more wounded than that. He expects the worst and prepares for it. This difference can be summed up in their origins. Superman, while being the sole survivor of a doomed world, grew up in a healthy, supportive environment. In many versions, he did not know his true origins until adulthood. And while he discovered much about Krypton and his biological parents, he had no direct experience or emotional connection to them. Ma and Pa Kent were always there for him. The core event in Batman's life, of course, was witnessing the murder of his parents. Where Clark learned to trust the world, Batman was wounded by it. The tone of their books and environments reflect this difference. Metropolis is the bright, shiny city of the future. And my guess is we're going to see a lot of repeated slides over the course of the day among all of us. Um, where, Batman, where Gotham is a dark, gothic city of fear and shadows. Uh, these are both Steve Rude and World's Finest, which, which Peter mentioned earlier, which is just a marvelous book. Uh, just his art captured that, that dynamic just so well. Other than both of their mothers being named Martha, how can we discuss the differences and similarities between these two characters and the op opposites they seem to embody? The American Monomyth is a 1977 book by Robert Jewett and John Shelton Lawrence, wherein they propose a specifically American version of the famous monomyth theory of Joseph Campbell. They follow this book in 2002 with the myth of the American superhero. A lot of their work in these in these two books were based on a concept developed by film scholar Robert Ray. In A Certain Tendency of the Hollywood Cinema, 1930 to 1980, Ray introduces the concept of two competing versions of the hero, what he called the official hero and the outlaw hero. 
Now, I didn't think of this until about three hours ago. You can use the terms dick and asshole <laughs> to tie into these two themes as well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and I know, I know that. Yeah. I use that. It's yeah. in my <laughs> it, just, it, it hit me when you were saying that. I was like, oh, that's, that's what I'm talking about today. I need to reference that. <laughs> he gives many examples of these from other, other films, from our films and literature, as well as myths, legends, and folklore. For the purpose of illustration today, Two of the most enduring, let's talk about King Arthur and, and Robin Hood, two of the most enduring characters of European legend, at least. Arthur is king with the powers that come along with this position. It is his duty to serve the, can- the land, his kingdom, and the, his people with the power of the law on his side, to keep chaos at bay and give order to the realm. Now, how successful King Arthur was at that depends on the story you read. Um, not always very. <laughs> Robin Hood fights against a corrupt government to help the common man, and by doing so, is branded an outlaw. While outlining traits for each of these, in many cases there are overlaps in, in these and the way characters are portrayed. Superman, in general, falls into the category of the official hero, at least in terms of the traits by which Ray defines it, although there are exceptions. He exhibits the best attributes of adulthood, sound reasoning and judgment, wisdom and sympathy based on experience, he is comfortable in society and willing to undertake civic duties requiring self-sacrifice. His goal is to have a safe and settled life, as represented by women in marriage. That's very specifically the Robert Ray concept. Those things represent a settled life. Um, in, in his life, this is a more recent development. He spent decades trying to escape Lois's wily traps to, to trick him into marrying. But in 1996... He and Lois finally tied the knot, uh, and they eventually have a son named John, who we're going to see more of in Mav's presentation. Um, the official hero believes that we are, and, and this is kind of key, he believes that we are a nation of laws, not men. No man is above the law. You cannot take the law into your own hands. Okay, so maybe not that last one based on some of the stuff we saw earlier today. Superman certainly took the law in his own hands a lot when he was throwing landlords out of buildings and, and that sort of thing. Batman seems to fit the role of the outlaw hero. He has a distrust of civilization, as represented by society and women, avoiding a settled life. We saw this for decades in Bruce Wayne's multiple dalliances with any number of socialites over the decades, uh, not settling down. Though in recent years, his relationship with Catwoman has dealt with that a little bit more. He's become a little bit more settled. Uh, We'll see how long that lasts, like anything in comics. Is it? Okay, I'm behind. He believes that man understands a natural law of right and wrong, has a distrust of political solutions. Individual effort and solutions are better. So there is a law higher than the official law of the land. There is a morality that he is willing to follow through, even if it means breaking the official law of the land. Other than characters designed specifically to be patriotically themed, such as Captain America, no character has been more associated with America than Superman. He's associated with the best ideals of the country, truth, justice, and the American way, as the saying goes. This association links him to the powers that be, symbolically making him an official hero, whether he's a recognized agent of the government or not. Batman wages his war in the darkness, dealing with villains that the law cannot, often finding himself in conflict with the law. He believes the system has failed, and only through the individual effort of taking the law into his own hands can things be put right. The natural law of right and wrong takes precedence over what the official law says. Except, of course, when he's working directly with Commissioner Gordon, who often gives tacit approval to Batman's nighttime activities. In Batman the Dark Knight Returns, Frank Miller explores the idea of a dark side of the official hero. 
In this sequence, which is admittedly difficult to read in this format, we see the American flag resolve into the Superman S Shield logo, visually tying the hero together in no tying the two together in no uncertain terms. In this world, every superhero has been outlawed except Superman. He is the only official hero, and in this case, has become the unquestioning tool of the tyrannical government. The very sort of thing outlaw heroes are designed to fight against, which Batman does. Rarely has the clash between these two conflicting ideologies been more evident. Though this was not the first time there had been discord between them, it cemented this conceptual conflict between the two characters and has been a major theme in their interaction ever since. In spite of these conceptual differences having been in place from the beginning, this conflict had never been so overt. For decades, Superman and Batman were paired as best friends. Some of this came from them simply being the two primary and best-selling characters in the DC franchise. For years, they appeared together along with Robin on the covers of World's Finest Co- Comics, often engaged in fun activities. They ended up playing baseball, what is it, volleyball, basketball over here. There are covers where they're water skiing and having picnics, uh, digging a victory garden for the war, uh, which you know, very different than Frank Miller's version of the way they interact. And this portrayal of them as super friends continued for decades. While there's been hints of the friendship in media of this friendship in media since then, the violent clash of their competing ideologies still colors a lot of their public perception. As a 23-year veteran of comics retail, I can tell you that this debate still rages as one of the most common topics in conversation at the comic shop. There probably wasn't a week in my 23 years of Family Addict that someone didn't argue who was better, Superman or Batman. 52 weeks a year for 23 years. <laughs> 52 weeks a year for 23 years. Um, the dynamic tension between these two archetypal heroic ideals is one of the strongest story engines in the genre, extending beyond Superman and Batman and forming our perception of most superheroic interactions. Marvel Civil War, as one example, played out this dichotomy on a larger scale, involving all of their heroes in the conflict and debate. In this instance, Captain America, who is usually seen as the official hero, served in the role of the outlaw, rebelling against the dictates of the government, whereas Iron Man, who is essentially Batman with a far more complex utility belt, found himself in the role of official government representative. As a retailer, and you and I have talked about this different times, as a retailer, what I found fascinating when this was going on is it didn't matter what political affiliation or belief system my customers had, they all identified with Captain America. It didn't matter which side of the Republican, Democratic, conservative, progressive debate. Everybody thought Captain America represented them, which led to some deep (laughs) conversations and arguments with people about all of that. I know where I fall on that. I just found it fascinating when I started hearing the other side. Um, And there's probably a paper or book in there someplace. in recent years, there's been more of an attempt to reconcile the differences between Superman and Batman while still acknowledging them. Uh, this is from Tom King's run on Batman, which I personally like a lot. It was my favorite Batman series in a long, long time. And if you haven't read this issue, this double date issue, that is just these four characters going to the country fair. It's just a marvelous <laughs> look at their personalities and the way the interactions and their differences. Um, but these days, they say they, it's an attempt to reconcile the differences between them, but still acknowledging those differences. There's a mutual respect and an agreement to disagree over methods. On some very basic level, this speaks to the need everyone has to balance conflicting parts of our own psyches. 
End with a quote from Carl Jung. To confront a person with his shadow is to show him his own light. Once one has experienced a few times what it is like to stand judgingly between the opposites, one begins to understand what is meant by the self. Anyone who perceives his shadow and his light simultaneously sees himself from two sides and thus gets in the middle. Thank you. So, hello, and thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. My name is Marcel Walker. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, and I want to give first a special word of appreciation to the organizers of the Superman's Cleveland Conference. Uh, for, and for, thank you for extending the invitation to be here, uh, and thank you for bringing this event together. Also, a real quick special thanks to my Pittsburgh teammates, Wayne Wise and Chris Maverick, and they're not here, but all the people in my orbit who have to listen to me talk about Superman incessantly. So every week, 52 <laughs> weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling that's very common. I, I, I know I'm amongst my people, so it's all good. Yeah. So uh, I, I appreciate everything. And uh, learning of the opportunity to explore Superman's distinctions had immediate appeal to me, ensuring my participation. But for the past decade, I've been involved with a special project that has not only redirected my career path as a comic book creator, it's also immersed me in one of the cultures that gave birth to this character and given the broader perspective and given me broader perspective through which to view it. Now, when I mention these multiple cultures that birthed Superman, I'm asking you to think of three specific cultures that intersected at a specific time and place for this to happen. The time was the 1930s, and as we all know by now, the place was Cleveland, Ohio. So across this landscape, there existed three distinct cultures, each with their own character and attributes. The first was Jewish culture, which provided the framework, history, and global outlook for the character's creators. The second was what would eventually be called geek culture, which was infused with the qualities of inquisitive youth. Intelligence, estrangement, ambition, joy, isolation, and more. And <laughs> geek culture has always been a really volatile mix. The third was Great Depression-era American culture, which defined the overall mood the creators were living within and the crises that the character was created to act against. All three of these cultures, suff all three of these cultures suffered from disenfranchisement and to degrees disillusionment with how things were. But the spark of youth found expression in two inquisitive and creative Jewish teens. Others today will speak of the humble origins of writer, have, and some have already spoken of the humble origins of writer Jerry Siegel and artist Joe Schuster. Today, I just want you to consider that these two young men existed at the perfect intersection of three cultures, which allowed for the amalgamation of Jewish values and worldviews with youthful optimism and ridiculous flair and American tenacity when confronted with a hopeless situation. The, to paraphrase one of our own creations, one of their own, one of Siegel and Schuster's own creations from a much later narrative, these two were here for a reason, and it wasn't to score touchdowns. Geeks are generally associated with being bright, and within the Jewish community exists, as has always existed, an emphasis on the importance of education and connection to the Jewish community at large. I'm not Jewish, but I was a bright child, attracted to bright characters, and even though I was socially disconnected from Judaism and unaware of the real-world origins of my favorite character then, like any fan, I discovered more about them as I grew into adulthood. 
These photos were taken of me in 2016 by that guy right there during my first visit to Cleveland. Now, by this point, I already knew all of the factual details about the journey Superman's creators had taken. Uh, but what I couldn't understand or fully appreciate was the magnitude of their journey. What impossibly superhumanly strong minds they had to tap they had to tap into a collective experience far beyond their hometown. Standing in front of where they'd conceived my favorite character, I felt like I understood them far better than ever. And I admired how they could be thinking mindfully about events affecting millions of Jews a world away while still standing right here. Over the course of Superman's publication history, the characters' stories have referenced and addressed the Holocaust in both specific and oblique ways. During World War II, comics creators, a largely Jewish contingent, were acutely aware of the situation unfolding across Europe. As with other superheroes, this awareness manifested in the pages of his published adventures. In February 1940, a two-page Superman story by Siegel and Schuster titled How Superman Would End the War appeared in Look Magazine. This hypothetical story, where Superman captures Hitler and Stalin and brings them before a court to be tried for war crimes, caught the attention of the Nazi party. The huge early cultural appeal and messaging of the character provoked a response to the story in a Nazi weekly newspaper where the Jewishness of the character and its creators were openly derided. After the war, during comic books' Silver Age of the 1950s and 1960s, Superman's background was further fleshed out in fantastic tales that were often silly, usually silly, but sometimes quite moving. Uh, the editorial mandates for such extreme storytelling afforded creators the opportunity to have Superman reunited with long-lost relatives and friends and sometimes enemies that he either didn't know of, such as Supergirl, or had thought were dead. He also frequently discovered artifacts from Krypton, which included the bottle city of Kandor and its miniaturized civilization in Action Comics 242, 1958. These discoveries often provo provoked moments of self-reflection for the Man of Steel and added complexity to his relationship with his heritage. Now, while not directly referencing the Holocaust, Superman's journey at this stage had strong parallels to Holocaust survivors and their experiences reconciling the violence and loss of their past while still retaining their full history and identity. Many comic book creators were military veterans who'd experienced World War II firsthand. Through their hands, the Holocaust was gradually addressed in comics. The horror and military genres were the first to directly reference these events. But eventually, creators dealt with the topic in mainstream superhero comic books, too. Some of the titles that explored this topic over the next 30-plus years include Captain Marvel number 19, December 1969, the first superhero comic to deal with the Holocaust, Batman 237, 1971, Captain America 237, September 1979, Uncanny X-Men number 161, 1982, by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum and Bob Wysak, and in Superman Volume 2, number 54, April 1991. I like to show that I, I did do the research. <laughs> a very straightforward and somber story titled The Warsaw Ghetto saw a time-traveling man of tomorrow land in the past and interact with Jewish prisoners of the 1940s Nazi-established ghetto. In a later storyline from Superman, The Man of Steel, number 82, 1998, writer Louise Simonson and artist John Bogdanov and Dennis Janke returned Superman to the Warsaw Ghetto, this time in a story that saw him revisiting his original incarnation from 1938 in both appearance and demeanor. The issue was shrewdly timed as a 60th anniversary story that acknowledged the character's origins, <clears throat> 
from the throwback logotype on the cover to the title character's hands-on approach to tackling the Nazi menace. Superman overtly protected the prisoners of the ghetto and admonished the Nazis, not just physically, by hurling away soldiers and smashing a giant swastika, but also with his rhetoric by denouncing the distortion of his name as Nietzsche's philosophical proxy. I interact with a lot of academics. That, I don't usually use words like that in the real world. Just, just so you know. There'll be more of them. It's constant. <laughs> the striking cover, cover imagery provides obvious contrast between Superman's inceptive and modern appearances and also prompts an observation about how and why the character has stood the test of time in our real world, even through war and suffering. Superman was created through joyful enthusiasm and inspiration as a singular psychological defense mechanism embellished by Jewish culture, geek adolescent culture, and Depression-era despair, which rapidly evolved through mass identification into a popular coping mechanism with a strong Western cultural influence. The unconscious, instinctive nature of the defense mechanism could be seen as embodied by the early rambunctious nature of the character and differences in his costume all of which gave way to the conscious portrayal of the character as a paternal figure with rarely changing costume elements uh, as, as, as a paternal figure with rarely changing costume elements that emerge. Now, whether as a defense mechanism or a coping mechanism, Superman as, an, as the embodiment of protective action is perfectly mirrored by his appearances in Action Comics. A perfect example of Superman as an instructional coping mechanism can be found in the anniversary story, The Life Story of Superman, found in Action Comics number 500, where the character demonstrates to readers the power and value in sharing one's history and trauma. In the story, Superman leads a tour group through Metropolis's newly established Superman Museum, and when asked by a fan to use a Kryptonian artifact to recollect his buried memories of life on Krypton from when he was a baby, Superman complies. As the story continues, Superman's earliest memories now brought to the surface cause him to slip into a more childlike state while he describes the destruction of Krypton and the loss of his parents. The argument that Superman is so powerful that he can never be hurt is refuted as the most powerful person in the galaxy is reduced to tears by his painful survivor testimony of catastrophe and loss. Years later, when I re-encountered this sequence and after working at the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh, I realized that what is asked of Superman here parallels what is asked of Holocaust survivors when they are called upon to revisit personal tragedy, to educate audiences who can't imagine such occurrences. I also realized that having encountered this fictional story when I was young, in some early way prepared me for the realities of working with Holocaust survivors. By coupling the engaging qualities of the comic book medium with the dynamic power of the medium's most enduring hero, this story channels Superman's overwhelming grief into an instructional moment for readers where his strength is revealed not through superfeeds, but through his willingness to share. I had a base understanding of this as a child because of my own chaotic home experiences. I understood it in full as an adult once I better understood what loss entailed. Comic books as literature have the power to help us learn to process and empathize with trauma, our own and that of others. Superman served as an inspiration for a genre and for various real, wor real world cultures. His fictional example and presence continues to assist us as a consistent coping mechanism. In 2014, a steering committee was formed by the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh with the intention of finding a better means of aiding Holocaust education for middle school youth. The committee decided to create and publish a comic book featuring the true stories of five regional Holocaust survivors. With trust from their survivor community and their families, 
The first issue of Hutzpah Superheroes of the Holocaust was published in August 2014. Two of the survivors featured were Moshe and Malka Barrett, a long married couple with individual wartime experiences that we chose to depict together in a single interwoven narrative. Here, you see one of the very few photos of them from their youth, which we had to work from, juxtaposed with how they were depicted in the book. I created the cover artwork and drew their story inside from a script titled Parallel Choices by my friend Wayne Wiles. In real life, Mache and Malka often told their stories to inform and educate the public about the Holocaust. In Hutzpah, we decided to tell their stories using that as the framing device against which we flashed back to their personal experiences. The two began by addressing the readers directly and speaking of their respective origin stories, growing up in the shtetls, small villages in Poland. For the most part, their beginnings were humble and joyful. They never anticipated the brutality of what lay ahead. With swiftness, Nazi soldiers stormed each of their shtetls, rounding up prisoners and whisking them away. Mache's family was taken to the ghetto Krasny. Malka's family members were separated and sent to different death camps to be murdered. Malka ended up at a women's work camp where she toiled for several years. Like millions of other Jews who experienced the Holocaust, the courage it took each of them to survive, their conviction to retain their sense of identity, their resistance against oppression simply by staying alive, their resilience in weathering the many hardships of forced labor, and the sacrifices they were forced to make again and again were nothing short of superhuman. Mache was able to eventually escape the ghetto and align himself with a group of partisan fighters. He helped coordinate the arrangements to free his family and saved his mother, brother, and one of his sisters. The other sister was sick with typhoid, so their father chose not to journey to safety and stayed to care for her. Mache is depicted in the present speaking mournfully about how the ghetto Krasny was annihilated in 1943. Mache's next two years were harsh as he and the other partisans were pushed back by the German forces deeper into the swamps. He detailed their struggles to rest, sleep, find food and water, and stay alive during their persistently grueling days. Eventually, the reader learns that their unit joined forces with the Russian army, and then later with American soldiers. At this point, Mache was able to finally lay his armaments to rest, and eventually he made his way to the United States. In the women's labor camp, Malka and the other prisoners were awakened one night to the sounds of, of a child crying. They discovered a little boy in their midst, and they all agreed to protect him and keep his presence hidden from their captors. When the camp was eventually liberated, David joined the women in exiting to freedom. Malka was aided in leaving the country by the Russian army and would later encounter Mache at a displaced persons camp. They would go on to get married in Israel, move to the States, begin a family, and build a life in Pittsburgh as advocates of Holocaust education. I have long believed that the most hearty victory that the numerous Holocaust survivors delivered over the Nazis was going on to live long, productive, admirable lives. Mache is still with us today at 103 years old. Needless to say, many parts of his story, the loss of family, heroics to preserve and defend life, the resolute nature, made me think of Superman's story while I drew. When I first got to meet him in 2014 at Hood's Powell Volume 1's release party, I had a combined physical and mental reaction that can only be compared (laughs) to seeing Superman embodied in real life stroll. I knew I was going to do this. Excuse me. (laughs) Stroll into the room. Yes, it was just that powerful. Mache has likewise evolved from a literal human defense mechanism into a coping mechanism for the world. I've had the honor of getting to know numerous Holocaust survivors through my work at the Holocaust Center, but few of them have left an impression on me. <laughs> like our late friend, Shulamit Bastaki. Shulamit actually didn't remember a lot of her own Holocaust because for the first three years, excuse me, she was a friend. 
For the first three years of her life, she was secretly raised in the basement of a church by a Catholic nun. At the end of the war, the nun, not knowing if the child had any living family, bundled the toddler and left her beside a body of water, where Shulamit was eventually found and taken to an orphanage by a passerby. She was later reunited with her father, who was able to re-identify his daughter by a birthmark. Shulamit's frequently sunny disposition would have hidden her dark origins, if not for her devotion to sharing the story, which she embellished through years of study and learning about the larger context of the Holocaust. While the elements of her past align neatly with Superman's origin, the way Shulamit lived the rest of her life, sharing truth and justice in the form of a not-quite-so-mild-mannered social worker who loved to give hugs and teddy bears, Shulamit reminds me even more of Clark Kent. With a reporter's tenacity, she was determined to tell school-age audiences the truth of her journey. I saw many of them reduced to tears, even, through the, even though their life paths were very different from hers. May her memory be a blessing. Now, I finish with the, a few words about my own life paths. As a child, I'd been separated from my family several times during my youth, sometimes in very explosive ways. And the repeated removal from my volatile home environment has had a lasting impact on me. Many of our most well-known superheroes have undergone traumatic events. How they deal with those traumas defines their heroism. From the time I was five years old, comic books, superheroes, and specifically Superman, provided an escape from family hardships. As a defense mechanism, Superman very much helped keep me sane. I can't imagine the shape of my life without him in it. And I'll forever be grateful for the confluence of events and cultures that led to his creation. As a coping mechanism, Superman and Clark Kent are still my moral North Star. I'm now a content creator, and I facilitate communication and factual information about the Holocaust as the Hutzpah Project Coordinator, Lead Project Artist, and Resident Comic Book Authority at the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh. For this, I say thank you to Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster for bravely sharing their stories and cultures unconsciously and consciously with the world. And thank you to Cleveland for nurturing these cultures. I ask that in the future you continue to collect more perspectives on the man of tomorrow and grant us the space to immerse ourselves in these stories. I also ask everyone here to pay close attention to the difficult testimony of our neighbors whenever possible. When we do, we're lending today's actions toward building of the society that would make the man of tomorrow proud. As Jonathan Kent would say, you are here for a reason. Thank you again for this opportunity. Try not to cry during mine. <laughs> Marcel makes it hard on everybody. <laughs> oh, yeah, me too, and I've heard the story. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm going to try to compose myself from the impossible to follow act. But, um, faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Since basically the beginning, Superman's been defined by his powers. This is wrong. Hi, my name is Dr. Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mav. I teach digital narrative, interactive design, English literature, and cultural studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And I'm here to tell you that we've been reading Superman wrong for the better part of 85 years. And with him, we've been reading the very concept of superheroes incorrectly. We shouldn't be talking about their powers. I'd say that. That's probably the least important part. As you've heard today, Superman is arguably the first superhero, and he is inarguably the standard bearer of the genre. And what would the default superhero be without superpowers? Well, he'd probably just be Batman. <laughs> In fact, he'd definitely be Batman. 
Everything that makes Superman super is missing from Batman. However, as Wayne noted earlier, we've also spent the last several decades proving Batman's superness, specifically usually by matching him up against Superman. As Wayne said, who among us has not had a Wednesday comic book shop argument of who is better between Superman and Batman? That very question is the impetus behind countless superhero tales over the years. Some of them good, many of them less than good. Don't at me, I will not apologize. Martha! (laughs) My point is that in many ways, Batman is seen as powerful because he is Superman's equal in some kind of raw physical power when matched against each other. No one goes into comic shop arguments and makes the point that Bruce is objectively better at doing taxes and balancing a checkbook than Clark is, or that Clark is incontrovertibly better at knitting and needlepoint than Bruce. This is a fact. Don't look it up. Just trust me. No one argues these things, but maybe we should be. Instead, we focus on what we think makes them superheroes. Their powers. Kal-El can fly. He is strong. He has x-ray vision that he can use to see through women's clothing and look at their underwear. He has a Rohypnol kiss that can roofie Lois Lane. It was 1980. That is the plot Superman 2. It was a different time. A very problematic time. It was also 2006. And maybe that roofie kiss resulted in the birth of a super baby that she'll let the X-Men Cyclops raise unknowingly as his own while she secretly cuckolds him with Superman. Like I said, different time. A very weird and problematic time. Maybe it's best that we just retcon that story and never mention it again. He also has the power to generate a miniature duplicate of himself that he can shoot from his hand. (laughs) A duplicate that he repeatedly referred to as the power. And it had all of Superman's abilities, but it left him impotent and insanely jealous to the point where he eventually hatches a plan to straight up kill the duplicate by exposing it to kryptonite so that he can be powerful once again. And then once he does kill the duplicate, he feigns concern about maybe the duplicate loved him anyway and sacrificed himself for it. I know you think I'm making this up and exaggerating like I did with the knitting slide, but um, I'm not. This is the actual plot to Superman 125. Go read it. It was 1958. It was a different time. A very weird and problematic time. (laughs) Maybe it's best that we just retcon it and never mention it again. Or the time that he had the power. Okay, I'm going to stop there. The truth is, I could go on for hours about the ridiculous powers that Superman had, especially during the Silver Age, and the absolutely problematic, horrible ways that he abused, definitely Lois, definitely Jimmy, sometimes Lana, but not as much, with those powers. But the reason that this was allowed to occur was that we, as readers, and the creators, focused on Superman because of his superness. For the most part, we've ignored the man aspect. Focusing on his powers leads us to a belief that might makes right. It all but ensures Zack Snyder's dystopian world of a fascist Superman, something that should never be allowed to be, for reasons that Marcel went into. There's a reason for this. Again, as Marcel told you, Superman was first published in 1938 by National Comics and created by two good Jewish high school friends from Cleveland, Ohio, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. If by some miracle you didn't know that before today, you clearly do now, because it's been mentioned a lot, and we're not done yet, so it's going to be mentioned again. (laughs) 
<laughs> Superman of 1938, while not his final form, was more or less identifiable as the character we have today. There were some power and personality tweaks to come, but the basic DNA was there. He was super strong. He was bulletproof. He had a blue and red costume. The cape was there. The yes, in some version was there. That character with modifications, gaining the ability to fly, the x-ray vision, the heat vision, super hearing, super breath, etc., 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 shooting miniature duplicates from his hand, um, they, they became, okay, not that one, but the rest of the abilities became ingrained in the American zeitgeist. In 1972, semiotician and cultural critic Umberto Eco gave an academic framework for analysis of the superhero, positing that Superman, and with him all superheroes, must be viewed as mythic figures because of their presumptive perpetual publication model. See, Marcel said he, people, academics use big words. This is the big word portion of the, of the evening. Give me a moment to get through these. <laughs> um, Echo argued that superheroes were governed by an illusion of change. Like all mythic heroes, the superhero faces a succession of Herculean tasks, representing the allegorical threats of the society that birthed him. However, in order to continue the series ad infinitum, the superhero is never allowed to enter the third phase of the Campbellian monomythic hero's journey. He perpetually repeats the second phase. To Echo, locking the hero in the illusion of change was the secret to mythic heroism. Much of Superman's classic appeal was in the idea that no matter what threat was given to him in any given month, he was absolutely going to defeat it. Eventually, he will more or less return to the status quo. Eventually, he will always be an undefeatable and all-powerful bastion of goodness. But... In their first incarnation of Siegel and Shakespeare, the Superman was more of a villain. In 1933's Reign of the Superman, they imagined the title character as a scientifically engineered homeless man with psychic powers. The story explores the likelihood of power corrupting the human spirit and questions whether or not humanity or the human condition is even capable of overcoming our darker inclinations towards greed and avarice. It is not particularly positive in its outlook or conclusions. Basically, given superpowers, the very first Superman tries to take over the world. Siegel, in particular, was fascinated by Friedrich Nietzsche's Ubermensch from also Sprach the Zarathustra. In fact, it is from here that the name is derived, Superman. However, this is somewhat mis misleading. While Ubermensch is commonly anglicized as Superman, that interpretation loses much of Nietzsche's original nuance. Uber can be translated as super, but it typically carries a connotation of transcendence or progression beyond. Similarly, Mensch denotes a member of the human species rather than just a man or male specifically. Therefore, to be the Ubermensch is not merely to be a great man or even a perfect man, but it points to a being that is beyond humanity. Nietzsche believed that through self-actualization and practice, humanity could evolve in consciousness and in morality. Once this higher level of being was achieved, the Ubermensch would see modern man in the same way that modern man views his common ancestry with the ape, as a laughingstock or a painful embarrassment. Through his protagonist, Zarathustra, Nietzsche beckons readers to overcome their petty nature and welcome the Ubermensch, ascending with him. That is, Nietzsche wasn't interested in a single individual becoming physically powerful. Rather, he proposed that a world that allowed us as a species to slowly progress towards being the Ubermensch would be to the benefit and greater potential for all humanity. 
This was the promise that Siegel attempted to replicate with his early work, often depicting Superman as an anti-authoritarian socialist who was more interested in fighting poverty, corrupt landlords, and oddly enough, drunk drivers than he was to taking on, uh, taking on supervillains. I think, Peter, you mentioned that story earlier. In any case, over time, the character matures, and he became the lovable Big Blue Boy Scout, the preeminent superhero, Superman, the most powerful hero of them all, who, rather than wearing a mask when superheroing, wears glasses to disguise himself as mild-mannered news reporter Clark Kent whenever he's not adventuring. The idea that Clark is the mask is almost as universal discussion in American comic book shops as the speculation about a fight with Batman. Filmmaker Kevin Smith famously complains in his first spoken word special, An Evening with Kevin Smith. He says that John Peters, who's a producer, misunderstood Superman because he insisted that his feature film, Superman Lives, should feature a Superman who couldn't fly and didn't wear a costume. Two hallmarks that Kevin Smith saw as irrevocably necessary for the character. Smith saw Clark Kent as the costume that Superman wears. To, to Smith... He needed the name Superman and he needed the costume because the suit was Superman's identity, as was his ability to fly. Superhero fashion scholars Barbara Brownie and Danny Graydon formalized this academically when they note that when Superman steps out of red, out of red, yellow, and blue and into gray or black, or when Spider-Man exchanges spandex for cotton and denim, he is not removing his disguise. He is substituting one costume for another. For some... Clark is even more of a costume than the spandex, as immortalized in Quentin Tarantino's film Kill Bill Volume 2 by the titular antagonist, Bill, when he says, what Kent wears, the glasses, the business suit, that's the costume. That's the costume Superman wears to blend in with us. Clark Kent is how Superman views us. And what are the characteristics of Clark Kent? He's weak. He's unsure of himself. He's a coward. Clark Kent is Superman's critique on the whole human race. Bill is wrong. Clark Kent is not how Superman perceives our human weakness. Clark is his, his admiration of human strength. Yes, Kal-El was born super. He doesn't need a secret identity. He doesn't need the reporter job. He doesn't need a paycheck or an apartment or any of the trappings of humanity. But he wants them. He isn't attempting to be more super. He is attempting to be a better man. Clark Kent is Superman's attempt to perform humanness as best that he possibly can. Clark is Superman's ideal. He is Superman's aspiration. It turns out Kevin Smith was wrong. Superman doesn't necessarily need the cape or the power of flight. In Smallville, Tom Welling's Clark Kent never dons the Superman costume or flies until a teaser in the final scene of the final episode. And he never actually uses the moniker Superman throughout the series. And yet, it runs for 217 episodes across 10 seasons. Tom Welling has played Superman more than any person who's ever lived. More time on screen. It remains not only the most successful adaptation of Superman, but the longest-running super, single superhero series in American history, despite embracing its no-tights-no-flights philosophy. Those character traits can't be essential to the character. By the way, Power Rangers ran longer, but they insist that there are several different series and not just one. It's the only superhero story that has gone longer than Smallville. Instead, what arguably is essential is Superman's big blue Boy Scout altruism. In fact, 
building towards greater humanity is the only way that fandom will allow Superman to grow as a character. Echo's framework implies that story progression may never upset the essentialness of the character as fandom conceives him. If Superman's powers change um, him from a flying powerhouse to an electric dynamo, he must revert to the status quo within a year. If he attempts to drop his Clark Kent identity to be Superman full-time, he gets less than three years before DC uses a very convoluted story to make the world forget and reestablish the Clark Kent identity. Superman isn't even allowed to change his costume and stop wearing his underwear on the outside without fan backlash. And we're right. Because of the illusion of change, Superman's relationship with Lois Lane had been designed to be stagnant since the beginning. He was either in love with her, but she hated Clark putting him in a love triangle with himself, or he simply rejected her out of his devotion to bachelorhood. In fact, in his 1972 essay, Echo himself argues that to marry Lois Lane would be, for Superman, a step towards death. Academics might have problems with relationships. I don't want to... Yeah. <laughs> However, Clark and Lois have been happily married since 1996. But for a brief attempt to return him to bachelor status as a greedier character with New 52, which was again soundly rejected by the fan base so that he could return to Wedded Bliss in a convoluted storyline in less than four years, with underwear on the outside. Where other characters like Spider-Man, Vision and Scarlet Witch, Hawkeye and Mockingbird, Batwoman, and even Batman have had their marriages erased, in an effort to return them to an unencumbered status quo, Superman is allowed to grow and mature. His marriage has been embraced for nearly 30 years now. He's also now a father, because this speaks to his humanity. Something that Trevor will speak to in a moment. In fact, he's not just a father, he's become the patriarch to an entire super family, raising them in his altruistic image. These changes away from the status quo have been embraced rather than rejected because they embrace the humanity over his superness. He is not a superman. He is a superman. And so others can be as well. These changes have reverberated back into other adaptations of the character. Nearly all incarnations of the character since the 1990s have focused on his personal and domestic relationships, especially and primarily as Clark, rather than his superpowers. These changes are allowed to persist because they make him more human. And this has been his legacy. In this time, problematic though we may be, this is the Superman that we cannot retcon, a legacy that we cannot forget. We do not move on, not to outrun bullets, not to beat trains nor jump buildings, but to be the Superman the Ubermensch, beyond human, the most human. Thank you. All right. Uh, before I begin today, I'd just like to take a quick moment um, to thank our host. Uh, it's lovely to be here. And also my other fellow panelists who had some wonderful presentations that also tie nicely into what I'm about to say. So thank you for queuing me up. If I said anything intelligent, it's because they set me up for it. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, I'd also like to just thank my dad, who's here today. Um, without him, I would not have my love of Superman that I do. And in more ways than one, I would not be here today. So thank you, dad. Um, it's really appreciated. <laughs> So, from the early days of Superman, fatherhood has been a key component of the character's history. In fact, if we go all the way back to Action Comics number one, the very first text of that first appearance of Superman reads, quote, 
As a distant planet was destroyed by old age, a scientist placed his infant son within a hastily devised spaceship, launching it towards Earth. And it's this first act of love and sacrifice from the character that would go on to be called Jor-El that the entirety of the Superman mythos is born and created. So despite countless adaptations, reimagining, reboots of the character, one thing that always remains consistent for Superman are his two different father figures, Jor-El and Jonathan Kent. These two men serve as crucial catalysts for the character of Superman, and it's through their dual influences that the Man of Steel is created into the superhero that we know and love today. Now, contrary to a lot of popular notions of the character, of him having merely a two, um, dual identity of Clark Kent and Superman, I argue that instead he actually has three different personas, with Kal-El being the final one in that trinity. So Kal-El is the son of Jor-El, and Clark Kent is the son of Jonathan Kent. And it's the way in which the character chooses to interact with both of these legacies and identities that then the persona of Superman is created in their synthesis. Now, before I proceed and start talking about Jor-El, I'd just like to take a quick moment to acknowledge why I'm talking specifically about fatherhood and not about Superman's parentage as a whole. And ultimately, that has to do with the fact that Superman, like much of the superhero genre um, as a whole, um, unfortunately is rooted in a lot of patriarchal concepts and ideas of hypermasculinity. Um, so as the scholar Kara M. Kavarn notes in her piece, Super Daddy Issues, Parental Figures, Masculinity, and Superhero Films, quote, it was during the war and post-war period when most superheroes were invented, and their origin stories and relationships with their parents established. Fathers taught and inspired, and mothers were sidelined. Boys became men, and men became superheroes, the masculine examples set by their father. This has historically been case, the, the case for the Superman character. So while his two mothers, Laura and Martha Kent, might still be ever-present figures within the Superman mythos, being a life giver um, and a nurturer to the character, unfortunately, their roles are downplayed. And it's really his fathers who are given credit for shaping the character um, that we know and love. So now to turn to kind of his first father figure and the first persona of Kal-El, Jor-El. I think there are really two different iterations of the Jor-El character that we have to deal with in terms of their legacy for the character. The first is the traditional approach to Jor-El. Um, this is the one that is seen by far and large in most Superman media, whether it's the Superman film franchise or the pre-crisis era of the comics, or even kind of some modern retellings of the Superman origin. This version of the character lives on a utopian Krypton, one that is filled with scientific wonder and achievement, and Jor-El is an exemplar of that society, being one of the largest participants in its greatness. Um, he's a man of intellect and study and passion. He cares deeply about the humanity of Krypton and wishes to save his world from destruction. Um, he has scientific achievement in his own right, being a uh, refiner of space travel, the inventor of the Phantom Zone projector, um, and he serves as a member of Krypton's ruling body, the Science Council. In comparison to this, we have John Byrne's reimagining of the character um, in a post-crisis era. This version of Jor-El um, is one that lives on a more dystopian Krypton. Um, Krypton is a place that is cold, isolationist. Um, Kryptonians have forgotten the meaning of love and emotion and connection and live their lives practically in solitude. Um, like Jor-El in the past, this version of the character is also a scholar by nature, um, but is far more of a historian um, than, than kind of past iterations as he attempts to reclaim the humanity um, and love that was lost by his people through his study of history. Um, and so while both of these iterations of the character have their own distinctive kind of identities, 
One thing that is consistent across both of them um, is that they pass along their knowledge of Krypton to their son Kal-El, thus inspiring in him a deep intellectual curiosity. Whether that be through ghostly apparitions appearing and putting the knowledge of Krypton directly into his mind, or passing along tablets with Krypton's history in his spaceship, um, no matter what, they find some way to pass along the technology, history, language, and culture of Krypton, thus creating the, the Kal-El persona. I think that this persona of the character is deeply reflected in the location of the Fortress of Solitude. It's a place where Kal-El is able to collect and preserve Kryptonian artifacts, um, engage with science in his own right, creating his own technological wonders like robot companions and, you know, Superman robots. Um, additionally, I think that this version of the character exists isolated from the world he seeks to protect. He is the last son of Krypton and is therefore isolationist in nature. And I think it's that for that reason that this persona of the character is one that is featured um, very infrequently by creative teams. Um, he lacks the social dynamics and excitement of Clark and Metropolis and the heroics of Superman as a character, and therefore tends to be downplayed, or his kind of narratives tend to occur in the gutters of the pages. Um, now, also, I think another reason that the character is less kind of featured as heavily as part of the narrative is also just due to the fact that I think that Jor-El has a far less significant influence on who Superman is in comparison with his adoptive father, Jonathan Kent. But before we turn our attention um, to this adoptive father, I want to take a little bit more time to revisit kind of the dichotomy between these two different versions of Jor-El. Um, so the first iteration of Jor-El exists as an exemplar for his son. Um, he's, he sets an example for him to follow. I think we can turn to the pages of Superman Birthright by Mark Way that really establishes as well, as the Kryptonian legacy is one of achievement, intellectualism, um, and courage that Kal-El must not only be a caretaker of, but must be an active participant in, seeking to further that legacy in his own right. But for Byrne's take on the character, Krypton exists as a cautionary tale for Kal-El. It's something to sure be preserved for its cultural importance and its potential use in his superheroics. Um, but at the same time, it serves as an example for him to further embrace his own humanity and to engage fully with his adoptive homeworld um, and to turn away from the failings of Krypton. But perhaps the two most important contributions that Jor-El makes across any iteration um, is his failure to save Krypton and his own choice to sacrifice himself in saving his son. And his inability to save his homeworld, Jor-El then leaves a legacy for Superman to surpass, as Superman continuously saves his adoptive homeworld from destruction, therefore he's able to step outside the shadow of his biological father. But in juxtaposition to this, and the sacrifice that Jor-El makes in terms of giving up his own life, he sets an example for Clark to follow in, engaging in practices of selflessness um, and love and care for others in the world. Now to turn our attention to his adoptive father, Jonathan Kent. Jonathan Kent is a humble farmer from Smallville. Um, he, while Jor-El might offer knowledge and nobility to the character, Pa Kent offers wisdom and heart. Jonathan Kent is devoted, supportive, and unconditionally loving towards his son. Jonathan Kent's influence is reflected in the persona of Clark Kent. Um, so despite kind of the chaos and bustles of Metropolis and the demands of, of journalism that he experiences at the Daily Planet, Clark nonetheless remains a humble, well-mannered, kind, hardworking individual, just as his adoptive father taught him to be. So far more so than Jor-El, Jonathan Kent remains as a constant source of wisdom and moral guidance for the character. It's from the installation of these values that Clark chooses to use his powers to the benefit of others and not for his own personal gain. It's also in these values of humility, equality, connection, and humanity that Clark chooses to live among humanity instead of outside of it. It's due to his upbringing by his adoptive father 
that Clark views himself as a human first instead of a Kryptonian. Additionally, a unique component of his character is that he's able to give approval to Clark. He's able to instill pride in him as his son. Therefore, Clark seeks to uh, honor this pride um, and to engage with it further, earning it through his actions both as Superman and as Clark Kent. But perhaps one of the most important contributions that Jonathan Kent makes to the Superman narrative is his death. So across Superman media, a constant motif is the death of Jonathan Kent, and his death serves an important function. Grounding Superman in humanity emphasizes the limitations that he has as a hero, but it also humanizes the character whose experiences of grief, mourning, and acceptance of loss that are deeply human experiences and feelings that transcend his superheroic abilities. So while Jor-El may be responsible for the powers and greatness of Superman, it is Jonathan Kent who is narratively responsible for Superman's moral character. Therefore, it is only through the combination of these two men, both of whom embody the best of their own respective worlds, that Superman is able to exist as the first place. So Superman as a synthesis between his two legacies is something that's continuously reinforced throughout the Superman mythos. In fact, if you look to multiple tellings of the Superman origin story, again, turn into the pages of Superman Birthright or to Jeff John's Superman Secret Origin, the costume that he wears is created by his mother, Ma Kent, but is inspired by traditional Kryptonian dress with the shield that he wears being a symbol for the House of El. In this way, even the costume he wears is a way in which he engages with his dual heritage and seeks to honor both of his parental legacies. However, while the Superman persona is certainly a combination of these two different identities and legacies, um, it also lies in tension and opposition to who his, both of his father figures are and what they view and want for Clark as their son. So Jor-El, in sending Clark to Earth, frequently speaks of Earth as being a heaven for Kal-El upon his arrival, or speaks of him as having godlike powers or godlike presence. Um, in other iterations, he speaks of him as a leader, a man of tomorrow, um, a guide for humanity. And while cer certainly Superman embodies many of these characteristics, he also defies many of them. So he chooses to live as an equal among humanity instead of outside of it or above it. Um, in doing so, he defies this expectation set upon him by his biological father. So while his feats and actions are godlike, his attitudes, behaviors, and belief systems defy any kind of godlike expectations. Um, likewise, Jonathan Kent, in some iterations, um, plays the role of a protective parent. He's fearful of how the world will treat Clark, how they'll understand him, um, or how they might abuse him. Um, and therefore, he wishes him to remain in secret for his own protection, but also to maintain the identity that he has as his son. And yet, of course, Superman is an incredibly public figure by nature. Um, he sets an example for others to follow, choosing to be a symbolic influence on the world, um, embodying the values instilled by him by his father, instead of merely remaining contained as merely his son. Um, even in iterations where Pa Kent is a purely supportive figure, in fact encouraging the Superman identity, I think that the universality of the Superman character still stands in stark contrast to the rural isolationist life um, that is filled with humility and kind of serenity that Jonathan Kent experiences, therefore stepping completely outside of the world of his adoptive father. Ultimately, the Superman identity transcends both parental and cultural legacies that he inherits creating something that is uniquely his own out of both of them. This is perfectly captured in the conclusion of Superman's Secret Origin by Jeff Johns, when Lois Lane says, quote, I had one last question. Are you a man or an alien? And Superman simply replies, I'm Superman, Lois. In doing so, Superman is acknowledging that he is both human and Kryptonian, but in their synthesis, he has become neither. He's become something new entirely. He's become Superman. Now, to quote Superman the movie, the father becomes the son, and the son becomes the father. 
Um, and this is perhaps more literally true for the character than we might initially think. Um, so fatherhood has been a consistent thing throughout the Superman mythos, far more so than we might kind of initially approach it as. Um, so going back to the Silver Age um, with the world's finest super sons, as well as we can look to other examples such as John Byrne's Superman Batman Generations or Alan Moore's Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow as examples of futures in which Superman has children, we can also turn to Elseworlds tales and other imaginary stories in which Superman um, across his kind of history has had children of his own. More often than not, a son um, who inherits Clark's powers as well as in some manner, shape, or form inheriting the mantle of Superman. Even characters within the canon of Superman can be read as surrogate children for the Man of Steel. We can turn to examples such as his cousin, um, Supergirl, or his clone, Superboy, as different times when the character's narrative um, has flirted with the idea of Superman stepping into a parental role as he guides both of these figures into the Superman identity. Part of Superman's identity has always been his symbolic influence on the world around him. He preserves humanitarian values and Kryptonian culture in tandem, sharing them with the world. Therefore, fatherhood is treated as an inevitability for the character, and it's the most concrete form of passing on one's values and legacy, passing on the symbolic influence that he holds, as well as his two, two dual identities, being the last son of Krypton, and as well as a product of being America's dwindling heartland. In preserving these two dying legacies, it's important for the character to pass this on. Therefore, the creation of the Superman identity by Clark and Kal-El cannot be understood as successful unless he passes it on to others. Thus, this is something that is assured to the audiences throughout his narrative by the guarantee that he will always have a child of his own. In fact, the many children of Superman reflect the character's own narrative with fatherhood as they are forced to confront their inheritance of their dual identity of human and Kryptonian, more often than not choosing to embrace it for themselves and honoring it by becoming Superman in turn. Thus, the Superman legacy is preserved. But of course, we cannot talk about the Superman legacy without talking about his most recent child that's introduced into the comics, um, which would be John Kent, Superman's son. So John Kent is the son of Lois Lane and Clark Kent, who was raised out in the rural countryside before his powers emerged at the age of nine. Soon after, he adopted the title of Superboy, joining his father on superheroic missions. Um, and after being flung through space and time by a black hole, he came back aged up to 17 years old and soon after adopted the Superman title for himself um, when Clark left for an interstellar mission. Now, like his father before him, John is forced to confront his dual legacy as a human and Kryptonian before he's able to take on the Superman title. Not only does John bear the name of his adoptive grandfather, which only further illustrates the importance and influence that Pa Kent has on the character of Superman, but he also recreates Clark's, Clark's youth by growing up in the American heartland. John is forced to grapple with his Kryptonian legacy in a far more explosive manner when Jor-El comes to Earth thanks to some meddling in the DC universe by Dr. Manhattan, and takes John out into the cosmos um, in order to explore the universe. It's during this time that John is aged up to 17 years old, the age at which he is now able to inherit the Superman mantle. Therefore, in grappling with both of his father's influences and their different cultural legacies and backgrounds, much as his own father was forced to do, John is able to serve as a true successor, embracing the multiple legacies of Superman and the legacy of Superman itself as his own. To offer some closing thoughts, what the narrative Superman tells us is that fatherhood is an inherently complicated thing. 
We are always the inheritors of our parents' values, culture, and legacy, and that can be both a blessing and a burden, such as the case with John Kennan, who struggles to live up to his, father Im his father's image despite his desperate desire to do so. Though ultimately, there is no Superman without Jor-El and Jonathan Kent, but there is also no Superman without Clark's choice to create his own legacy, his own family, his own vision for the world. It is in this choice to embrace and at the same time recreate his heritage that Superman is born. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, everybody. And I'm back. So that was the conference. There was a question and answer session after that, but it's kind of hard to hear and not mic very well. So edit it out. But, you know, if you ever get a chance to go to an academic conference and see us, you should come because it's a lot of fun. You get to see us actually present our work and then sort of chat afterwards. Not just us, lots of academics. We had a great time. We got to meet lots of people, you know, some of whom will probably end up on this show sooner or later. And we had a blast. It's always nice to see the exhibits. There was a full installation of Superman artwork. We got to listen to Mark Wade talk about writing Superman. It was a great time. I would in particular like to thank the Ohio Center for the Book at the Cleveland Public Library and Valentino Zullo, who hosted the event, for having us, for inviting us out there. We had a great time, and hopefully we can do something like this again. Anyway, next week we will be back to our regularly scheduled programming. We'll be talking about a topic. I'm not sure what. Why don't you check out our blog at www.voxpopcast.com, and you can find out what we're going to be talking about next week as soon as we figure it out. You could also comment on this or any other show. You can leave us suggestions for things that you want to hear us talk about. And you can pitch yourself as a guest. Sometimes we, we pick guests from the comments. All kinds of fun stuff like that. You can also follow us on social media. We are at Vox Popcast on Facebook and Twitter and oh and Blue Sky I think you know wherever social medias are found probably most places and you can follow me all those same places at Chris Maverick if you enjoy the show and we certainly hope you do then please subscribe to us on iTunes or Spotify or Google Play or wherever the hell you get podcasts from I don't know we're on Pandora I think and do us a favor, leave us a five-star review. If you leave us a five-star review, especially on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, that gooses the algorithm, makes us more popular, and really helps us out. I would once again like to thank Marcel and Trevor for being on the panel with me and Wayne. I'd like to thank Valentino and the Public Library for having us. I'd like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.